How can we design spaces that make us measurably healthier, happier, and more productive? Join us on Built for Health, where we talk with public health professionals, researchers, and AEC practitioners on the latest knowledge and strategies to design, build, and operate healthier buildings. I'm Flavia Gray. I'm a Schneider Fellow at USGBC, and I'll be your host on Built for Health, brought to you by USGBC. Hello and welcome to the Built for Health podcast. In today's episode, we talk about community with Andy Dannenberg, affiliate professor at the University of Washington School of Public Health, and Mark Delisi, vice president of corporate responsibility at Avalon Bay Communities. They will tell us about their professional journeys, how community design affects health and well-being, issues to be aware of, and the best strategies to address them. Enjoy our conversation and stick around to the end of the podcast where we share resources and educational opportunities on the subject. Season two of Built for Health is made possible by Kaiser Permanente. Together, we thrive. Okay, this is Andy Dannenberg. I'm on the faculty at the University of Washington in Seattle with appointments in both public health and urban planning. Uh, the work I've been doing over a number of years crosses over that intersection between how we build the environment and the communities around us and the impacts on health of how, how things are built. Um, my prior experience uh, related to this was working at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. And one of the issues there, as we looked from the public health point of view of how to make people healthier, was realizing that we needed to work with the people who build the physical world around us. The very short version of that, if you want people to walk, which is great for health, you need to have the sidewalks and paths and places to walk. And public health doesn't build sidewalks and trails, but rather the developers and planners and architects and landscape architects and others um, do that kind of work. And so we realized we needed those collaborations across those fields. Now, let's go to Mark. Uh, sure. So Mark DeLisi, I'm Vice President of Corporate Responsibility for Avalon Bay Communities. Uh, Avalon Bay is a public uh, equity real estate investment trust. Uh, focused on multifamily, and we have about 291 apartment communities in 20 U.S. markets. Uh, we are also a developer. We have a little over $2 billion under construction, and then we operate our communities. Uh, so we are a, a long-term hold uh, of those communities once they're constructed. My role here is focused on what we call corporate responsibility, which is kind of two main components, if you will. One is the environmental sustainability side uh, with 280 290 plus properties. Utilities are one of our largest spends as a company, and there's a lot of opportunity around environmental sustainability with those buildings. So it's focused on uh, that piece. And then the social investment side, what we call building strong communities, uh, which is uh, a lot of uh, regional partnerships focused on affordable housing, uh, support for at-risk communities. And then we have a large multi-year partnership with the American Red Cross uh, that's focused on disaster preparedness and engagement with their uh, mission. Thank you both for being here today. We're so excited to have this conversation and to learn more about healthy communities. And I'd love to touch on some of those points that, that you just mentioned through your introduction. But let's start a little bit general. And Andy, why don't you tell us, what are some of the characteristics that determine what a healthy community is? A healthy community is a place where people 
can thrive. And what that means physically, uh, we, we put walkability at the top of the list. If people can walk, they can interact with their neighbors, they can interact with other people, they can get access to the goods and services that they, they need. The equity issues are part of a healthy community, giving people um, access to housing, access to goods and services and, and transportation. And all these have uh, health implications. One place that people like to get some physical activity is parks and green spaces. So a healthy community has good access to, to parks and green spaces. Another component of a healthy community is, is feeling safe and secure. So even if there are places to go for a walk, you, you need to feel that it, it's safe both from crime and, and violence, but also safe for, from traffic issues. So for example, just having safe crossings on, on major streets are, are also part of a healthy community. And an additional part is having clean air and water, that if you go outside and the air is not fit to breathe, really none of the other factors matter, that you need a place that people are comfortable walking and enjoying the environment around. Very important issues. Um, so thinking about the walkability, um, which you mentioned repeatedly, you know, what are some of the benefits in terms of health of having a more walkable community? Um, the top of the list for walkability really is the physical activity, and we have an extensive uh, research base in public health that says people who are physically active get many benefits for their health in, in, in terms of uh, heart disease and diabetes and even cancer and high blood pressure and obesity and a whole, whole range of health benefits from being physically active. Walking is one type of physical activity that is really probably the most available of all types of activities to be done almost anywhere, anytime as compared to other types of activities such as having to go to a gym or having that special equipment. Uh, most people at most ages are, are able to walk so that by designing a community that allows and encourages and facilitates walking, it's, it's a major public health intervention to um, encourage and allow uh, walkability. One of the examples that, that we've used as a marker of a healthy community, if you look in the environmental world, if you want to see whether a river, for example, is, is a clean river, you look for a fish population, and if the fish are thriving, then the river probably is clean. In a community, if you see pedestrians on the street, it's a very good marker of a healthy community. I love that reference. Um, so, Mark, tell us about in your communities, what are some of the things that determine their walkability? The number one component that determines walkability for us is where we place them, where we where we decide to develop. You know, there's a there's a trend certainly in the last ten to fifteen years for our uh, residents, for our customers, if you will, and they want to live in uh, more urban centers. There's there's an interesting shift that's happening that's move away from the suburban into the more urban and, and sort of ex-urban, if you will. You know, if you look at some of the cities where we are in, take Washington, D.C., for example, we're headquartered in Arlington, Virginia. There's, there's D.C. itself, but then there's kind of Small cities, as you go further out from the city, Tyson's Corner, Arlington itself, they've all become uh, more uh, dense urban areas, and we're finding our residents want that. So, so we do often develop in areas like that, and then, uh, therefore, that determines a lot of the walkability of it. The other component, though, around walkability, which is kind of a proxy for it, is one thing to be able to walk out of your community, but where can you walk to, right? Is there a you know, grocery store nearby? Is there entertainment nearby? Is there 
places to go um, and enjoy an evening on a weekend? Is there access to, uh, you know, health providers, all the things that make up um, our residents' daily lives? Uh, they want those things accessible, right? And so I think for us, that trend uh, we found is really something that we meet well with the areas that we develop. And it's it's only growing um, even further out. Some of the more traditional suburban communities around these cities have themselves developed this town center concept, right? Where you have all of those components together. You have the multifamily, the condos, et cetera, and then you have all the other components of a daily life right there in that town center. So those those tend to be for us very strategic areas to develop. And, and the markets and the response of our residents to uh, those properties has been um, phenomenal. If I could add something to reinforce what Mark has said, um, as we've looked at what how to get to healthy communities, one of the characteristics that's very important is working with the market. And as Mark is mentioning, if that's what the demand is, that the, particularly the, the next generations are looking for more walkable places, then the developers will respond and build the more, more walkable places. But it doesn't make any sense for an academic to say, here's what the ideal world is if there's no market and it's not compatible with the market. I think what Mark is saying is very much working with the market. The demand is there, so it makes sense to, to build more walkable places. And I think really your role in this, Mandu, is educating the consumer. And I think one of the, the reasons that the market has been changing is because consumers are more aware of the benefits of walking. You know, for whatever reason, there's other trends at play here. There's a trend away from getting your license at age 16 in some in some markets. I don't know how broadly that is, but there's a trend away from owning a car toward this sharing economy of do I, do I really need to own you know one or two cars, pay for all the insurance, pay for all the gas, pay for all the upkeep, pay for the car payment, or can I call Uber whenever I need to get around? So. Some of these other uh, components of the sharing economy support that notion. You could not have this move toward a more walkable community if you didn't also have the infrastructure around it for transportation, for other you know, industries that are serving that community. So that's one of the things also for Avalon Bay is to have some of these strategic partnerships you know, with retail organizations. A lot of our communities now are, are what we call mixed use. It's not just the apartment houses. On the first level, you have a number of retail establishments too as part of the whole development. So providing that infrastructure and that additional uh, set of services for our residents is really a key piece of the whole thing. Yeah, there's a number I've been fascinated by on private cars. Is on average, they spend something like 95% of the time parked and they're only used 5% of the time, which implies an enormous unused capacity. So the shared economy makes so much more sense to get better use out of those vehicles. The other implication for land use is that if a car is parked 95% of the time, you need a tremendous number places for it to park. And I have heard somewhere, and it's been hard to track down the number, but there's something like eight parking spaces for every motor vehicle in America, which means that wherever it is sitting, there's seven other empty spaces waiting for you to go to the mall or the church or the school for it. And as a land use choice, that's a really inefficient use of land. Yeah, yeah exactly. And in terms of the community, I would say that, you know, cars, we think of them as isolating. You're alone in your car. Usually you're going somewhere. 
versus um, in this case, what Mark was talking about of having these facilities within the community is also a place that brings people together. And so this brings us a little bit into the social interaction aspect of a healthy community. Um, so Andy, what are some of the benefits of having people actually interacting? Um, there's a whole range of benefits from social interaction. I guess I would start with mental health. People feel better interacting with other people than than, than being alone. Um, there's a resilience element that if you know people around, you can interact with them when there's a problem, you have someone to go to. And that can be anything from, you know, my car broke down and I need a ride, to I have trouble with daycare, to the, the larger scale disaster. There's a hurricane or an earthquake or whatever. If you know your neighbors, you, you can help each other. So th there's a lot of value there in having those interactions. Uh, pedestrians walk down the street or walking a dog have a, a much higher likelihood of interacting with people around them than, as, as mentioned, you know, being a, alone in a car. And even mass transit, I have seen some absolutely wonderful interactions between, say, a bus driver and a regular rider on a bus. Um, just because after a while, when, when there's regular use, you, you start to get some of those human interactions that you know, would not be occurring in a solo car. So, Mark, besides these retail spaces that you were talking about, what are some other amenities uh, that are beneficial in your communities to get people out and interacting? A couple things in terms of how our design has changed as a company, right, in, in terms of what we build. One, there is a much stronger desire to have on-site gyms, if you will, or it, you know, much better access to exercise equipment. And having that also paired with the opportunity to take classes in the building. So we oftentimes will bring in instructors and they can do a spinning class in our community or they can do a yoga class. They can do So this whole uh, kind of pairing of social interaction and working out component is a real interesting intersection that we've seen and we've certainly been responding to. The other thing that we're, we're building is more common spaces for working. We're finding that our residents who work from home or need to work or want to, you know, need, say, on the weekend to get on their computer for a couple of hours, they don't want to necessarily do it isolated in their apartment home. They want to come down and sit in more of a lounge uh, setting. And, and even if they're not necessarily talking to other people, they want to be with other people, right? So those kinds of uh, common area spaces is something that we're, we're highly attuned to and and trying to understand and develop them in, in response to that kind of demand. Um, I think the other uh, components, that's kind of on the design side, the construction side. The other piece that I work on with the Building Strong Communities program is in engaging our residents. So we have 140,000 people who call us home, right? And they uh, don't their lives don't stop at the doors of our communities. They're, they're involved in the community around us. And so are we. So, so a lot of what we try to do is bring into uh, the experience of our residents some of those more philanthropic components. So when we do Spirit of Caring Month, which is a whole month-long volunteer uh, session uh, kind of program that we do in May, we open a lot of those uh, activities up and bring them right into the community uh, to partner with our residents on. It's another great way to get engaged, right? It's another way to socially interact, if you will, around an activity, bring your kids and have them participate. There's uh, other events that we do for pets, right? Folks who have pets. So there's a lot of different ways that we do programming throughout the year 
um, and often tied into the building strong communities piece that that really uh, provides opportunities for our residents to uh, to interact. If I could add one thing to that, and that is the value of having um, resident and community input into the design, both of private and public space. So. Uh, Mark is talking about sort of in, in some of the private space on the public side in designing parks and, and green space, but knowing who lives in the community, if it's you know teenagers who want a skateboard park and having that there or basketball court or soccer field or whatever. But it, there's a lot of value in having community input to see what the people in that community, either current or ones likely to live there, will want so that, that what gets built and designed is, is responsive to what those those needs are. So, you know, for example, if you put a soccer field in a place where people don't play soccer, it's, it's not going to be, be very useful. Yeah, for sure. And I really like this idea of how the programming is very important. That'll make a big difference in the experience of the people living there. But also that programming really inspires the way that you think about uh, the spaces that you need in this community. You know, we have partnerships with a number of affordable housing providers where we support them and provide expertise and funding, et cetera. Great one is the Arlington Partnership for Affordable Housing here right around the corner from our headquarters. I think this notion of programming is not just for the market rate developers like Avalon Bay. We, in fact, do a number of uh, volunteer initiatives with Arlington Partnership for Affordable Housing, APA. Uh, is what they call themselves, where we'll go after uh, school hours and read with kids in the community, right? Have them come down or we'll go and do an event at their community to support after school learning. So these kinds of activities are not just reserved for, for say, high-end yoga classes and market rate developers, right? This, this is the kind of, of stuff that's just core to being human uh, in an apartment building. <laughs> and, it, and it doesn't take a whole lot, but where you really do, at least we see some real ad, uh, advantage is when, when we can come together with some of these other organizations and support that type of programming. I think it's real key to quality of life and it starts to get at some of that uh, social equity uh, side of this as well. If, if I could add that, there's one example here in Seattle called Yesler Terrace, which is a major redevelopment of low-income housing that was built decades ago that needed to be torn down. In the, in the redevelopment, what they're doing is a partnership between the city housing authority and a private developer where the market rate units are basically cross-subsidizing the affordable housing. They're being integrated into one site. There are common community facilities and everything I've seen so far, it's still underway, but fairly far along. It really seems to be working well um, in having both affordable housing and market rate working together with, with common community facilities. Those are perfect examples of when we talk about healthy communities, we're not just talking about, you know, the rich communities that have a little bit more access to, they call it amenities, but, you know, healthy air, healthy water, walkability. These are not amenities, but these are you know, social justice issues that everybody should have access to. And so those are great examples of how we can actually work with other types of communities in order to also help them be healthier. And another really important issue to talk about all of the communities is resiliency. And both of you were talking about some of the, the work that you're doing, uh, but it would be great to hear a little bit more. Um, so Mark, you were talking about how as part of Avalon Bay, you guys are working on 
climate preparedness and more. Yeah, you know, it's it's a very important topic uh, right now. It's a very important uh, thing that's happening. Uh, and I think for us, um, I, I again kind of go back to this notion that, you know, when we build and operate these uh, apartment communities, they are not situated in a vacuum, right? They don't, they are situated very contextually in a community in a very diverse community. And so, you know, when you get to events that are related to climate change, when you get to stronger storms, when you get to more frequent storms, when you get to severe flooding, uh, the fires in California, the, the flooding uh, a year or two ago in uh, Houston, these events don't happen just to one property, right? They happen to an entire block, an entire city, an entire area. And so that's where we really see the right kind of answer is this multi-sector response. And we, and we don't have all the response. We don't have all the responsibility, but we have some. And so, you know, I kind of break that down into a couple of areas. One is we do want our, I mean, I say they're not in a vacuum, but in a certain sense, we need them to be resilient. We need them, we need to be making the right kind of design decisions around uh, resiliency to ensure, for example, that equipment isn't sitting in the basement and vulnerable to flooding so that it works, you know, elevators work when, uh, you know, and if a flooding occurs. Uh, so there's a lot of considerations around the construction of the building itself, but then there is this more extended consideration of the infrastructure around it. And that's why I've been participating in conversations in our markets. Great example is Boston's Green Ribbon Commission, uh, they've been working for, you know, a number of years on this issue for the city of Boston. Uh, and we have a, a significant role to play in supporting those kinds of city and market uh, responses because they're making decisions around infrastructure investments. They're making decisions around code. Um, they're making decisions for the populations that live there that deal with the infrastructure piece of it. So there's the building itself and then there's the wider infrastructure. And we need to be working together. And that's why, I, again, I, I say this all the time. These issues, the issues like climate change, are multi-sector problems. They, are, they cannot be solved by one sector. And uh, the sooner we get to the table, the better. <laughs> um, so I, that's kind of how I, I uh, view our role and what, and what we're doing, you know, uh, in terms of investing in resiliency, supporting the market uh, investments and, and understanding how buildings can be better resilient going into the future. There's the whole topic of carbon, low carbon buildings um, that we could go into, but that's all stuff that we're participating in. If I could add to that, uh, what, what you're saying and what I agree with is we're really talking levels of scale that we need everything from the building level to the neighborhood level to the whole community level. There are different groups such as you know, metropolitan planning organizations and others that work at larger scale. There are groups that work on a smaller scale. I mean, really, there has to be good collaboration and, and communication among the different scales because they all do interact. Well, and Andy, to me, too, it's essential, but it, as we know, it's not easy. You know, they, they, I mean, I spent a number of years in academia myself. There's a whole culture that you are in there's a culture around a for-profit company there's a culture around an ngo there's a culture in a government and there's a culture in a federal or a city government so there's there's these uh sometimes conflicting cultures and there's these uh often 
prejudices that we have on what the other side is like, what, why they're operating, those are the kinds of things I hope we can continue to break down because it's, we can't, we, we have to break those uh, barriers down to working together, but it, it, it's not easy. And talking about some of those barriers, one of the things that Abby mentioned during his introduction was how, you know, they're here doing the research, trying to understand, you know, what a healthy building is, what a healthy community is, but in the end, they are not the ones building sidewalks. Um, and so in this case, Mark, what are some of the incentives for developers to invest in some of these healthy building, healthy community practices? Well, we, uh, there, there's a lot of, on the environmental side, historically been a lot of rebates that come from the utilities or local rebates, which really help with the returns. I think one of the best examples the last five years has been LED lighting, although I think now that that has been largely accepted, the, the rebates are going away there. They're shifting toward other areas of opportunity. I think similarly, we're going to see that in the healthy building movement. We, we just had our first Fitwell certified property in Washington, D.C. Ava Noma is the name of the property. Uh, and I think those kinds of certification uh, schemes, as they become more widely uh, utilized, will also have with them incentives. And, and I know, I, I mean, I was just on a panel with uh, Fitwell and um, uh, Fannie uh, May. I hope I got that right. It's either Fannie or Freddie, but uh, there's there they were even talking about incentives in terms of getting Fitwell certified. Um, so I think you know it's a challenging uh, area for us um, because each region market utility is different in terms of the incentives they offer. Those programs change; they get filled up and used, and then you can't apply anymore. There's all kinds of different rules around them. But if you can hone in on uh, really understanding them, I think there's it's a great example actually of multi-sector partnering because they're providing us with a means of improving our returns, which is something that's very important. And at the same time, we're able to uh, shift towards some of these areas of healthy buildings, more environmentally sustainable buildings, et cetera, by doing that. If I could add one thing to that, I'm very pleased to see the development of healthy building and healthy community certification programs. And one of the reasons is if you look at what LEED has done over time, it has set not just the standards for how to be certified, but it has set best practices. And so now there are buildings that are much more energy efficient than they might have been otherwise, even if they're not LEED certified, it's become industry standard to work toward energy efficiency. And what I'm hoping longer term is as we have healthy building and healthy community certification programs, it will set the standard so that why would you build any other way? Whether or not you get certification almost becomes less important because it has become the standard of how one uh, does building. Exactly. Let's make healthy buildings and healthy communities, you know, as ubiquitous as the talk about sustainability. And that is what this type of conversations are all about. And with that, so we wanted to ask you if there are some research information that you want to share with our listeners so that they can learn more. And if they want to live in a healthy community besides moving to Avalon, Mark, <laughs> what are some uh, resources that you can share with them? Andy? The organizations that have websites looking at healthy community issues include the American Planning Association, the American Institute of Architects, 
the Urban Land Institute, the Trust for Public Land, uh, the Transportation Research Board. So there's a, a, a number of organizations out there, all of whom have put out some very good information on, on healthy communities. So Mark, good. what are some resources that you want to share? Well, uh, one key one around the area of resiliency and disaster preparation, everyone should download the Red Cross app. It's a fantastic resource. The Red Cross has a tremendous amount of resource around this area of disaster preparedness, disaster preparation, um, you know, even even being able to connect with family members after a disaster has happened. There's a place you can go in their app to put your name in and family members' names so that you're at least connected. And then if a disaster happens, you can connect through it. So there's, there's some great resources that the Red Cross has that we've been using internally. I'll say the other, I'll, I'll make a shameless plug here, but I, I think from a, if you want to know where uh, the, the more forward thinking, uh, you know, well-run companies are headed, go look at their corporate responsibility report. Um, it is becoming more and more the norm that uh, companies uh, like Avalon Bay are being held accountable, not just for the financial uh, shareholder value piece, which is still exceptionally important, but also for the environmental and the social and the governance piece, and what we call ESG. In fact, the financial falls under governance too. So I'm, I'm going to make a plug for the Avalon Bay Corporate Responsibility Report. I uh, I also happen to write it, so I think it's pretty good. But you have to go if you you know I think with anybody, particularly if you're going to look to rent from a company, go see what kind of commitments they have around this stuff and look at their corporate responsibility report and see if they are a responsible citizen, right? And, and frankly, you can do that with a lot of different industries in terms of how corporately responsible uh, they really are. I think those are great resources um, to understand this um, movement within uh, the public or the uh, private sector around ESG, environmental, social, and governance uh, ways of running a company. If I can add one more, because I just heard about it two days ago, is the American Society for Civil Engineers came out with a monograph on designing resilient infrastructure. They have not looked through it yet, but it looked like the kind of thing that people ought to know more about. The fact it's coming from civil engineers means people are you know, thinking about these issues. Great. Thank you for sharing those resources. Thank you for enlightening us about how we can push for more healthy communities and what are the aspects that we need to be talking about and thinking about. and where we go uh, demand those, Mark, in learning more about corporate responsibility. Yeah, thanks, Flavia. It's a pleasure. Great, thank you. Thank you again to our guests, Andy Dannenberg, a Philip professor at the University of Washington School of Public Health, and Mark Delisi, Vice President of Corporate Responsibility at Avalon Bay Communities. Here at USGBC, we care about the wellness of the communities we live, work, and play in. For a deeper dive into how communities can become more sustainable, learn more about USGBC's latest certification, Lead for Cities and Communities, on usgbc.org. Also, check out our education course, Community Scale Sustainability, Accelerating Change for People and Planet, in the USGBC Education Platform for more on healthy communities. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Built for Health by USGBC. Now, we want to hear from you. What was your favorite part of today's episode? What are your best practices and strategies? 
share with us on Facebook or Twitter at USGBC. To learn more, visit our website at usgbc.org. Thanks for listening.